0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody here, all masked up. Sooner or later, we won't have to do that any longer. And uh, thank you for coming to worship with us. And if you're online, we thank you for joining with us. With joining with us there, just especially thank you, uh, Trinity, all the faithful people who are here each week serving and uh, worshiping with us always serving. It's been an interesting summer so far and uh, many things have have altered many aspects of our lives. And this week Janelle showed me a picture of this uh, mail room in North Carolina that had a murder hornet from China. First COVID, now murder hornets. Apparently that's the main thing we're importing from China right now is uh, plague and in insects. So it's been a crazy year. Twenty twenty, it's it's uh it's been a dumpster fire. <laughs> and and uh when we think about it we think that this seems like just calamity after calamity. It's really a one of a kind year. But is it really? I mean it it is for us right in this particular moment, but is it is it really? And if you've been around for a while, you've seen or heard of these problems before. War, famine, natural disasters, disease, strife between races, tribes, people groups. I hate to say it, but this is the norm. We're not special. It's been the norm throughout time. The peace we sometimes seemingly have in the moment is just that, it's fleeting, and it doesn't last. It never does. And that is why we believe in expositional preaching here at Trinity. When we travel through these passages looking at the original context and the original hearers, then applying the interpretation of to our current age and one of the things we should see is that those times are not so different from these times. The world situation is different but the fall has made a lot of things the same. And one of the things we'll see in this passage today is that the situation is the same in Jerusalem. It's for Jesus. Jesus, for example, is a Jew living in an occupied country, occupied by the Romans, and in the midst of his life, he saw disease and politics, racism, tribalism, poverty, strife. And today, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, this gospel is filled with the story of hope for the hopeless, help for the helpless, strength for the weak and mercy for the afflicted. Mercy for the afflicted then, and mercy for the afflicted now. And so let's take a look at this passage and see where we can find hope and peace for our lives now. Open your Bibles, please. Turn to Matthew chapter 21, and today we'll be looking at verses 12 through 22. I'll we'll start reading with verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lamb came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, "'May no fruit ever come from you again.' And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, "'How did the fig tree wither at once?' And Jesus answered them, "'Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, "'you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, "'but even if you say to this mountain, "'Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen.'" And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. It's God's word for us today. Let's pray. Lord, you are such a, a good God. And in your word, you have given us hope for all these situations, for all our circumstances, and for all these calamities. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand what you would have us learn from your word today. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So friends, today's passage is one of the most memorable accounts in Jesus' ministry, and you can say that about almost every passage, but this is one of my favorites. And when pastors preach on this passage, the headline often reads, Jesus gets mad, Jesus gets angry, it's usually righteous anger, That's how we, the word we put in front of anger that always means it's okay for us to do it. Some kind of clever title like how to turn the tables on fruitless fig trees in your life. But friends, if this is all we take away from this passage, then we have missed the mark. We have fallen short. What this passage tells us about the temple It tells us about the temple and Jesus and the believers, and it has a lot of truth for us today. But be warned, often when we talk about righteous anger, it's merely to justify our own unrighteous behavior. This is another reason we need Jesus as an intercessor. And even in our justified righteous anger, sin is crouching at the door, and we very often give in to temptation. If you recall last week, DJ preached on the triumphal entry. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, and his his arrival is celebrated. He is the returning king riding into town on the donkey to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah nine. And the timing here is critical. We know it's Passover. Passover is a big deal. The Jews are selecting their lambs to celebrate Passover. They're getting ready to mark the doorpost. And it's not just the Jews celebrating. Others are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate also. People are selecting their Passover lambs, even though it is completely unnecessary. Looking back, we see that Jesus is coming to become the Passover lamb. He's about to be that. A sacrifice that completely atones for all the sin. A blood sacrifice that is so much more sufficient than any lamb could ever be. This year, God is going to provide the spotless, unblemished lamb in his own son. And his blood is going to save the Jews and the Gentiles from death. And this is where we've been heading through the whole book of Matthew. Up to this point, the king arriving. And Christ has to die. And scratch that, in fact, Christ has chosen to die. He will die by the very hands of the ones that are waiting for him. It's a joyful and tragic moment. The Jews welcome a king, but Jesus weeps because many who are going to accept him as king are going to reject him as servant. And if we look at this passage in verse 12, He comes to the temple, and what's he find there? He finds money changers and people selling doves. And who are these money changers? They are, you may recall us talking about them before, but they're the people that are taking all this foreign coin, and they're exchanging it for Jewish coin. And this foreign coin that often had the images of deities on it, Being changed over for the shekel so they can pay the temple tax. Temple tax that comes to us from Exodus 30, where it says, Each one as is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And you've probably heard before that this is roughly equivalent to two days' pay. In Leviticus 5 7, it says, But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed. Two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. You see, the doves are like the poor person's, that's the poor person's currency. The people that can't afford a lamb, well, they can go buy a dove or two doves or even two pigeons. And since this is so close to Passover, what you'll know is the temple is very, very busy. So as the Jews have gone out and come back and as they've been able to convert people to Judaism, people are coming from all over distant lands to the temple to celebrate Passover. And they're coming to worship Yahweh. They're coming to Jerusalem to make an offering. The temple will be packed This brings me to the first thing I want to talk about. The appearance of vitality is not vitality. You see, just because the temple is booming doesn't mean it's teeming with spiritual life. It may appear to have vitality, but in fact, it's dead. Dead as a doornail, which is why Jesus is angry. There's another account in Scripture of Jesus cleansing the temple and chasing people out, that's found in chapter two of John. It's immediately following the wedding at Canaan, where Jesus performs his first miracle, one of my favorites, during water into wine. And in that account, Jesus makes a whip from cords and drives everybody out, including the animals. So are these the same accounts? Some people think they are, they're just put in different locations. And if they are not, why do the synoptics leave out this account? Or does why does John leave out the later account? I think it's pretty safe to say that there's two accounts. So the timing seems wrong for these to be the same. If the synoptics are wrong, and this actually occurred at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, then it's difficult to go forward from there because we know that this is a major turning point in the book, wherein the Pharisees are going to get very angry and they're going to much more aggressively seek to kill Jesus. Jesus. We look back at chapter 2 of John, starting with verse 18, we see this is what Jesus said looking forward, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jews asked him. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is what the Expositor's Bible Commentary says about these two being the same or two different passages. They say the synoptics do not record the earlier one because they do not tell anything about Jesus' early Judean ministry. The second cleansing as Passover drew near soon led to violent reaction by the authorities which ultimately is the seizing and the killing of Jesus. So that seems true. If looking at the two options, I think they're different enough to be two accounts. The point is that, as we will see, the chief priests and the scribes get very angry, and it seems as if they find another gear here in seeking to try and kill Jesus. If we put that aside and look at verse 13 of our passage, Jesus quotes the Old Testament Something he does more than 30 times in the book of Matthew alone. And in it he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This passage has a lot of meaning. It's actually two passages put together. It's a lot of Old Testament symbolism. The Pharisees would have been familiar with this passage. You've heard part of it today in Isaiah 56 from Dave. And sometimes it's not what Jesus says, but it's what he doesn't say that's that's often more important. So while we would do well to see righteous anger of Jesus at the people turning the temple into a house of, a den of robbers, if what we see here is Jesus getting mad at Jews for maximizing their profit, well, that would be enough, but that would not be the whole picture. We would miss the larger transgression. And if we look back in Isaiah 56, What Dave read this morning, I'm going to read part of it again for you today from verse three. No foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold firmly to my covenant, I will give them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give each of them an everlasting name that will never be cut off that is good news for the foreigner friends this is the root of Jesus righteous anger not only at the selfishness and the exploitation of the of the Jews but at the failing of the shepherds to care for their flock which includes the believing Gentiles God is pouring out his love for his people through the prophet Isaiah and it includes people that believe but aren't Jews. And I don't think it's wrong to ask, what about the branches grafted in? What about them? How are we to care for those sheep brought into the fold? It's a question the Jews should have been asking because you see the Gentiles came to worship God. They came to worship Yahweh and they came from far away to worship Yahweh. And where they ended up is in the 50-acre courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. So they were kept away from the temple because they were unclean, because they're Gentiles. And they worship God amid the bartering, the buying, the selling, and the animals. And so if you can imagine this for a second, this courtyard filled with animals being sold to people coming so that they can offer them as sacrifices. Well, I can tell you that I grew up in a small farm. When I say farm, it was much smaller than that, but you get the idea. We had animals. We had pigs and cows and even a horse named Penny. You may have grown up on a farm too. Or maybe you've just had animal, animals, but I can tell you that animals are pretty dirty. So they've got a lot of bad habits. You know it's true, they're messy. They uh, are often not housebroken. These ones certainly weren't. They leave droppings. They're definitely not potty trained. And imagine for a second that you've traveled from far off lands. You've brought coins so that you can trade it for these animals. And you are going to worship amidst that Yahweh. And think about the timing again for a second. It's Passover. You've been told about this God, you believe in this God a God who rescues his people from hostile nations, from plagues, especially ones where the firstborn were to be killed. You get to the temple to worship this God, the one you've heard about, maybe you've seen his power in a meaningful way. Because you're unclean, a Gentile, you stay in the outer courtyard where the animals are. So in verse 13, he quotes the Old Testament prophets to indict the Jews on how they have failed as shepherds. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So if you heard me mention, it's already part of that is from Isaiah 56. And the second half of it is from Jeremiah 7. He uses these two to prove his point. Isaiah talks about care for the foreigners and Jeremiah talks, after, talks about chasing after other things like foreign gods and then coming to the temple to worship. So what had the Jews done wrong? Well, while keeping the law about sacrifices, they'd failed to keep the laws about loving their neighbors. They created barriers and obstacles and stumbling blocks, and they worshiped their identity as Jews instead of being salt and light. God had commanded them to point towards him, not with their outward righteousness, but with their testimony of God's forgiveness and covenant faithfulness. And that happens through the sacrifice and it looks towards the promise of a coming sacrificial lamb. The kind that God provides. The kind that gets caught in a thicket. Saving a son named Isaac. Or the kind that's hung on a cross. And this is a God that saves. But that's not a message they're preaching. Their gospel doesn't liberate anybody. So in verse 14, we see another example, of the kind of people who do recognize the Messiah, the blind and the lame, those with great need. And you remember from, from DJ's sermon about the, the, the men waiting on the side of the road for Jesus to come along, who he heals. And in this passage it says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna! To the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And the people see this and respond to it by crying out, save us now, son of David. And the blind and the lame, they can't afford the temple tax. They can't afford a dove for offering. They're kept out of worship probably because of what they don't have, neglecting what they do have, which is what we all have, the desire for God's mercy. So the blind come to him, and the lame come to him in the temple, and he heals them. And I don't know because it doesn't say, but I wonder how long it has been since the blind and the lame have been to the temple. If they'd been, it's only because they begged long enough to pay the temple tax, and that's unlikely. It's unlikely that they have probably even gotten through the temple steps. But Christ has come, and they come to him, just like the blind men sitting by the roadside waiting for Christ to pass by. And he heals them. If you believe, if you have faith, waiting for that miracle may be all that you have. So it might be worth it to fight through the crowds, to get into the temple, to find the Messiah. It might be the only thing you can possibly do. But it's definitely the best thing you can do. Finding Christ and submitting to him is the best thing that you can do. And Jesus welcomes them into his family and tells them to come. And what is the reaction of the leaders? Well, when they saw the wonderful things he had done, they were indignant. They were angry. Angry that Jesus removed the obstacles to the poor people coming to worship. And then healing the blind and the lame. And see, this is why the temple needs cleansing. They shouldn't have been angry. They should have been grateful and worshipful and thankful and gracious and happy and merciful and all those things. Cleansing brings healing and restoration. When you cleanse a wound, this is what you do. You cleanse it to remove all the infection that might cause it to fester. And that's exactly what the purpose of the cleansing of the temple is. Jesus is removing all the infection from the temple, the rot that's in there. Jesus is taking it out. These people cry out, Save us now, son of David. And we see Jesus quoting the Old Testament again, Psalm 8 2, about the mouths of infants and nursing babes. But he omits the next line, which would have been. So good if he hadn't, but if you read ahead in Psalm 82, you have established a stronghold, an account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. He omits it because it's self evident. Jesus is the stronghold that's been established to silence the enemies. Listen, we are no longer under the law. Even reading about the law should point us to Christ. And I want to read this to you. It's theologian Bob Hookstra. He defines this relationship between the law and the tutor. The law demands that we be holy. We are convicted that we are not holy. Thereby the law is saying to us, you need Jesus Christ. The law requires that we be loving. We realize that we are not loving. Thereby the law is declaring to us, you need Jesus Christ. The law insists that we be perfect. We know that we are not perfect. Thereby, the law is announcing to us, you need Jesus Christ. In this process, the law functions as the tutor or the schoolmaster instructing people of their need for that which only Christ can provide through his grace. Now that we have responded to the law's tutoring work, we are no longer under the tutor Now that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the law. That is something to celebrate, friends. We are not under the law because Christ has fulfilled the law in his grace and power to us. And this is the thing, do you think God would have been angry had the Jews allowed people into the temple without the temple tax, without the money to pay for a dove? Do you think he would have been more angry at letting people, poor people into worship or to making atonement into a business, making God's mercy into a transaction? So let me give an example of the law. In my own life, so the American with Disabilities Act requires that of so many handicapped spaces, there are a couple set aside for van lifts. So out of, I think it's six handicapped spaces, you have to have one that's set aside for people that have, that are confined to a wheelchair and have a lift on their van. These spaces are extra wide to accommodate the lift going up and down. So we have several of these where I work. It's often enforced by the police. Many times people park in those spaces that don't have the lift. The sign specifically says van lift only. So, when people park there without the lift, they're in violation of the law. Could be an $80 fine, just so you know. So, we often have people park there, and this one day, this one gentleman came down to my office, and he was in a wheelchair, and he had a ticket for parking in a van lift space. And he said, uh, hey, is there any way I can get this taken care of here and not have to pay the fine or not have to go to court? And I said, well, are you operating a van lift? He said, no, I'm operating a Cadillac. And I said, well, the sign doesn't say Cadillacs only. It says lift vans only. He said, here's the thing. Cadillac has just these extra big doors. And I'm confined to a wheelchair, and I have this ultralight wheelchair I keep behind my seat but I can't park in a regular space when people park next to me. I can't get my door open wide enough to pull the seat forward, to pull the wheelchair out from behind it, and then scooch over into the wheelchair because Cadillacs also are low to the ground. So that's what I do. I park in the lift van space. I put my door open as wide as it can go. I pull the wheelchair out and then I scooch over. So technically you didn't have a lift He didn't have a lift van, he had a Cadillac. But see, the law is meant to discourage or constrain people from parking in the space. That is the intent of the law. But if the law is applied literally, then the law, which is meant to be a constraint on others, becomes a hindrance to those it was created to assist. And this is the case of the Mosaic Law, In Jesus, or the Levitical law, Jesus talks about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, saying they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. We see this constantly, Jesus keeping the law, either at the, sorry, Jews keeping the law, either at the expense of the people or even at the expense of their own relationship with God. Keeping the Sabbath holy, for example, making even resting a work in itself. And not to take away from how we can do that too, but we can add so many conditions and requirements to grace that we continually practically operate as if we aren't saved at all, as if we have to earn grace, as if we have to work to remain in God's love. And let's look back at verse 18. As Jesus is traveling on the road, he comes to this fig tree and says he became hungry. Jesus was hungry because he's fully man, and men get hungry, women too. And Jesus' expectation was that he would eat from the fig tree and it would satisfy his hunger. In fact, the sole purpose of the fig tree was to provide sustenance. That's what the fig tree was there to do. Some trees don't produce fruit. Those trees might produce shade. But fruit trees provide fruit. That's what they're supposed to do. Jesus finds is that this tree has no fruit. This tree can't sustain him. It can't satisfy him. And he can't feed him. And he curses it. And the second thing I want us to see is the truth about absent fruit and withered trees. So while Jesus curses a fig tree without fruit, really he just makes its outward appearance reflect its inward reality, right? There's something wrong with this tree. Like the temple, it may have the appearance of vitality, but it's dead. If it has no fruit, it's not fulfilling its one purpose in life, to provide life, to provide sustenance. This is what Spurgeon said, Our Lord, when he came to it, found nothing Thereon believes only it had overleaped the needful first stage of putting forth green figs and it rushed into fruitlessness. It was great at wood and leaf, but worthless for fruit. In this is sadly resembled Jerusalem, which was verdant with religious pretense and forward with a vain enthusiasm, but it was destitute of repentance, faith and holiness, which are far more important than pious formalities. The Lord Jesus used this green but barren and disappointing tree as an object lesson. He came to it as he came to the Jews. He found nothing but leaves. He condemned it to perpetual fruitlessness. You see, the fig tree had to die. It had to die for Jesus to make the point about how his people weren't being cared for because the shepherds were fruitless. While the fig tree was missing physical fruit, the temple was not producing spiritual fruit. The temple, which was there to give life, did exactly the opposite. It sucked the life right out of those that came there. And friends, the withering of the fig tree is not just an illustration. It is, in fact, a prophecy for what is to come. The withering of the fig tree, which will never bear fruit, is cursed and dies. And the temple itself will be destroyed in 70 AD because it is barren and fruitless and already dead also. So we need to ask ourselves these questions. Are we producing fruit? Are we enabling worship or impeding it? What kind of faith are we, are we witnessing to the world? Is it a fearful faith Caught up in current affairs, political adversity, social justice, defending our faith with anger, hatred towards our unsaved neighbors? Is this the message that we want to proclaim? Is this the gospel that we're meant to carry? Any of these things can be good things to concern ourselves with, but the message from the Bible is that all these things God has seen And allowed to happen to bring us to the knowledge of his son. This is what God's provision is for us and for them in the gospel, the good news. This is from Luke chapter 12. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide yourself with purses that will not wear out an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. God has prepared riches that never rust. He's given you a deposit that never overdraws, a check that never bounces. You know, fear comes from uncertainty, but we have nothing to fear. God has bestowed his grace upon us upon you so that you would not fear. Second Timothy, it says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. This is our inheritance. This is what Charles Spurgeon says about faith. This gives us a grand checkbook on the book of faith, which we may use without stint. How wide are the terms? All things, whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, Believing, if we are enabled to pray the prayer of faith, we shall gain the blessing, be it whatever it may. This is not possible concerning things unpromised or things not according to the divine will. Believing prayer is the shadow of the coming blessing, as a gift from God, not a fancy of the human will nor a freak of idle wishing. Believing, you shall receive. Believing, you shall receive. And this is what Jesus says in verse 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So in verse 21, Jesus preaches the meat of these two situations. He gives the promise of fruit that gives life. Faith enables you to do what you are supposed to do. Keep the law in his power. Love God and love your neighbor through the power of the Holy Spirit. Barren fruitless fig trees will wither before you. Mountains will move out of your way. You will bear fruit. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, I deliver to you As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Of first importance is a gospel that witnesses faith in Christ and delivers a message that answers this cry, save us now, son of David. The answer is he has saved you. You have nothing to fear. What should we be preaching from our pulpit in our church? Well, we should be sowing seed, and I'm glad that this pulpit has been one of hopefulness centered on the centrality of Christ and his sacrifice, his identity, and how we can use our platform, especially this small one, to proclaim his faithfulness, his sacrifice, as words of life to you. He wants you to be part of that mission too. He has called us all to help expand his territory To give him glory. Only you can do that because you are a unique creation that he has created for a specific mission. God did not make a mistake in choosing you. And he asks us to love him and love our neighbors, even when it comes as a cost, whether that's our own pride, our own comfort. Love the person sitting next to you, or behind you, or across from you. Not because they love you especially well, but because you're called to do that. That is your charge as a child of God. To be salt and light in this generation. And in so doing, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This is good deposit that's been entrusted to us from 2 Timothy but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you may have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. That's, a, that's the, the challenge as Christians to guard it and also to sow it liberally, disperse it widely, Give it freely. Cast the seed on the ground wherever we go so that other other people can live without fear. And this passage today is about how the Pharisees failed to love their own people and also the Gentiles. And in so doing, they also failed to love God. In their failure to keep the last commandment, they didn't keep the first. This is a symbiotic relationship, friends. If we don't love our neighbor well, then we are not loving God well. They coexist together. By keeping the first, we must keep the second. And if we fail to keep the second, then we are not keeping the first. But then again, do not be concerned that you have not kept the commandments perfectly. In truth, you can't. But Christ can, and he did. And so your balance is zero. You have no red in your ledger. And justification is the wiping out of that sin debt and the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness on your behalf. So if you haven't, don't let another minute go by without putting your trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have, don't let another minute go by without reaching deep in, pulling out as much gratitude as you can muster. And then put to death the idols that cause you fear in your life. These idols of comfort, of greatness, of wealth, of perfection, of lust, of peace. Put to death the deeds of the body through the power of the spirit. And then do it again and again and again. And in the middle of it, every time you fail, when talking to other people about your failures, explain to them what grace is. Explain to them what faith is. Tell them of your imperfect life. Tell them of your falling down moments. And tell them of Christ. He has overcome the world. And if we read in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take comfort in those words, friends. Believe it to be true. And if you doubt, pray that God would give you the strength to trust his word and pray for assurance and strength. And then live it out. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the kind of life-giving fruit that will not just last a lifetime, but will in fact last an eternity. This is secured in the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. And pray with me.